This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. We are only biochemistry and medicine students, therefore everything we talk about is through our own research. We will be talking about vaccines today, so if you find this triggering, please do feel free to skip this episode. Please do not take this as medical advice and talk to your medical provider about your medical needs. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Growth Medium Podcast. Join us today as we set out to expand our knowledge and grow our mindsets. We're your co-hosts, I'm Sarah and I'm Mim and I'm excited for today's episode. It tends to be such a controversial topic and there's some interesting narratives around it, don't you think Sarah? Absolutely and it is one of my favourites too and it is all about vaccines. Yes, this is going to be an exciting episode. Sarah and I are going to lay the foundations a little bit of the um, immune system. And then we'll later be joined by postdoctoral researcher, Dr. Grace Roberts, to talk about her opinions on vaccination. So let's get started on the foundations. The immune system is very complex, but as Mim and I are here to simplify everything we'll do our best to make everything understandable just i guess another disclaimer before we get into the episode here's another one i am actually sick as we're recording this which fits really really well with the topic of um today's conversation so if i sound a little bit different i'm sorry about that um someone should start counting how many disclaimers we put in and we should do like a total for season one but yeah Sarah, tell me, why am I sick? What is my immune system doing right now? Um, so we'll start with, some, with explaining something called the humoral and cell-mediated immune response. Now, these two immune responses generally involve two main types of white blood cells, which are B, B cells and T cells. Uh, and they're produced in different parts of the body. B cells and T cells are both produced in the bone marrow, but then the T cells need to go to the thymus to develop further. Anyways, so when we talk about vaccines, we're generally talking more about, and we're focused and zooming in on the humoral response. However, keep in mind that these responses are interconnected. So a little disclaimer there, a third disclaimer for this episode. Um, so they're interconnected. We can't really have one without the other, but we're focusing on the humoral response in this episode. Yeah, so essentially these white blood cells that are involved in the uh, humoral response, as Sarah just said, they are called B plasma cells. Now, these uh, form something that we call antibodies, which are specific Y-shaped proteins. And they're um, involved in disabling the functionality of a pathogen, a pathogen being a disease-causing organism like a virus or bacteria. So right now I have a cold, unfortunately, so uh, whatever virus is causing that, my immune system is hard at work to produce um, some B plasma cells that will produce some specific antibodies. B plasma cells and antibodies are really specific. They are so, so, so specific that there's a particular B plasma cell that produces a specific antibody for different antigens uh, that may uh, enter your body from the outside, the external environment. Now, an antigen is 
a molecule that causes an immune response. So it acts as a marker in the body to tell your immune system that there's something foreign right here. You know, so there's it recognizes that there's a foreign substance in your body. Yeah, you know what, guys? Our bodies work really hard to um, find these foreign substances. So if you're an undergrad biology student, something like that, you'll probably see under a microscope that these antigens um, generally look like a little spike on um, the invading uh, pathogen. And so this is kind of the physiology and the biology behind how vaccines work. So when a vaccine is uh, injected into the body, it produces, uh, what happens is the white blood cells kind of identify this uh, bodies as foreign uh, by identifying the antigen. And this antigen is specific to the pathogen, the disease-causing organism um, that is uh, entering your body now basically your body just recognizes that it's not its own and that's why it kind of like works really really hard to just show your immune system show your white blood cells hey this is not supposed to be here and you know what right now even though I have a cold my body is working so 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 hard to help clear it out a little bit and that's exactly how it's doing it. The white blood cells are being kind of uh, just like identifying the uh, virus that's giving me a cold through the antigen. So this kind of invasion and identifying the virus is, or the bacteria, whatever it is, that's what causes the immune response, which causes the production of antibodies. And so your body is responding to a pathogen on antigen, right? And in in essence, when it responds, there's two types of response. You have a primary response and a secondary response. Now, obviously from the name, you can tell that the primary response always comes first and the secondary response comes second. So a primary response is basically when your immune system is first exposed to the pathogen and um, so it needs to produce all the specific B plasma cells um, and they have to be selected so they're specific to that antigen and so they're chosen in this process called clonal selection and then this B plasma cell has chosen has to multiply by mitosis in a process called clonal expansion um, now, the primary response tends to be a bit longer because of all this process and it takes a lot of time. But then if you want to go into the secondary response. Yeah, so the secondary response tends to be much, much quicker than the primary response. And this mm. is when um, you've been infected with the same pathogen for a second time. And the reason it's so much quicker is because your body doesn't have to go through the whole process of clonal selection, finding the specific antibody. Um, we have memory cells that hey, that recognize, hey, we've seen this foreign substance before. We know what to do. Let's produce the appropriate antibodies to fight that specific host. So it's it's a lot quicker. And this is kind of the way vaccinations work because vaccinations give you that first um, exposure to um, a specific pathogen. And um, so when, if, you ever have exposure to that pathogen again the response is super super quick and you don't suffer uh, the symptoms that badly hopefully 
Yeah. And then so if you were to view, have you ever seen those graphs of the primary and then the secondary responses? Yeah. Where the primary often has like an elongated and flattened. Yeah. And then so basically on your x-axis, you got the primary response initially and then the secondary response. And then on the y-axis, you've got antibody concentration. Yeah. In the primary response, you have the antibody concentration is quite low and the primary response takes longer so you don't have much antibodies in in your body and as we said that's why you feel the symptoms whereas the secondary response the antibody concentration shoots up and it's a lot quicker and you know what this is a really really important point and this is why vaccinations are so important um when you have that secondary response because it happens so much quicker you just don't feel the symptoms of whatever disease you have for that long so even right now I've got a cold and you know it gives headaches I have a sniffly nose um my throat is a little bit sore um let's say for example I had the flu which tends to have similar um uh side effect uh, sorry symptoms like a fever or something if I got the flu vaccination I'd be feeling the symptoms for a lot less longer. Um, usually, like, let's say you suffer for the flu uh, with the flu for a week. It would really low... It would really... Um, what's the word? Just shorten the amount of time you have when you're feeling these symptoms and when you're feeling like crap. Run down. And mm. I know, like, you know what? It sounds like I'm, like, having a little heart-to-heart here, like boohoo me I'm so sick whatever but it's true it's why vaccinations really are helpful because this um you won't really have the symptoms of um the vaccination first so then the second time when you have it it just allows you to get up and running much quicker than if you didn't have the vaccine and in some cases it can be pretty life-saving so it's all right we'll go through this process with you go on dish it out but yeah it's so (laughs) sad this cold is actually taking the life out of me i was supposed to have um in-person tutorials uh this week um but i kind of emailed my tutor and i was like should i come in obviously there's a whole pandemic going on i don't know if it's smart and he was just like nope okay you stay at home um you can just join in through ms teams or something and i was like "Oh, oh okay um yeah yeah it's flu season right now everyone so yeah i think another good uh thing to mention is when you have the flu or the cold or something it does lower your immunity obviously because your immune system's working so hard to get rid of uh whatever virus is causing the flu or the cold um and some people question well how does this affect me in terms of coronavirus Well, if your immune system is lowered, it's more likely that you will, first of all, it's more likely that you have worse symptoms from coronavirus because your immune system is kind of just a little bit run down, a little bit slower. And that's particularly the reason why it's so important to go and get the flu vaccination this year so that you don't, you know, suffer from the flu and coronavirus at the same time. That would be absolutely horrible. Mm -hmm. And that's what actually on my priority list at the moment. I need, I want the flu jab because I can't be having the flu and increase my risk of catching COVID because it is very serious. You guys take it seriously. Please, please do. Now onto the more fun part. We are talking to our lovely guest, 
Grace Roberts, who we had a lovely conversation. It was really interesting as well. So, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that little science uh, discussion about the immune system. We're now going to talk, we're going to go to the second portion of the episode. Um, Let us know what you think of this format. I hope you enjoyed it. So everyone, I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Grace Roberts to the episode. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Grace, for being here with us. Your um, Dr. Grace is a postdoctoral research fellow at Queen's University Belfast, and she's got a first interest in uh, virology, viruses, respiratory viruses, and microbiology. So I'm really excited to have her on today. Grace, how are you doing? Tell us a little bit about yourself and your research. Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. Glad to be here today. A um, bit tired because we're very busy in the labs right now, as I'm sure everyone can understand. A uh, bit of background about myself. So I'm originally from Nottingham in the UK. Um, I did my undergraduate at Leeds University. I did microbiology a long time ago now. Um, and I stayed at Leeds to do my PhD, where I started working on viruses, particularly um, ones that are transmitted by mosquitoes. Mm. Um, since then, I've now moved into respiratory viruses, haven't we all? Um, <laughs> my research mainly focuses on, on um, viruses and asthma and how they interact and might um, cause um, one another, essentially. Um, I'm really interested in how viruses interact with our cells. So my main personal interest is looking at how viruses interact with the immune system of our cells because um, it's, it's so interesting because some viruses have lots of different mechanisms and how they evade your immune system and your immune system has to fight back so I'm really happy that you invited me on today because it's a topic that I'm really interested in as well. Yeah that's actually a really impressive resume it sounds really interesting. It really is and quite inspiring for all those young scientists out there ourselves included really really inspiring. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of this episode, Mim and I have gone over how our immune system works and how it relates to why we use vaccines the way we do. Now, in a vaccine, there's normally uh, an attenuated or weakened version of the virus, bacteria or whatever pathogen that we're trying to vaccinate against. And or it could contain sugars from the surface. There's many other uh, types and versions of active ingredients is what we call them that are used in vaccines. So a concern that may arise is that we're injecting foreign materials into the bodies of mostly young children. Should they be worried about this? I mean, it's an understandable concern from obviously a lot of people who aren't experts in vaccines or immunology or anything like that. It's understandable that people have these concerns. But I think what I'd really like to emphasise, and I'm going to say it many times throughout this podcast, I think, is that vaccines are really thoroughly tested for safety. You know, they don't just let anything come out. Um, They go through so many phases. So your standard vaccine can take 10 to 20 years from design, discovery, all the way through to you know being clinically used and they're tested on hundreds if not thousands of people in most cases um so that they do contain a lot of things that you maybe wouldn't encounter day to day but these have been thoroughly tested and a lot of them are in vaccines that have been you know tested previously so we've got um not recipes exactly but you know things that have been used in the past that we know are safe and even though we know they're safe they go through testing again in a new vaccine Mm -hmm. um a lot of these things that people are concerned about they're actually completely harmless um, so things like formaldehyde, you know, that's in fruit, 
our bodies make that ourselves in small quantities. So a lot of the chemicals might sound really scary, but in fact, they're, you know, they're everyday things that are all around us all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. That's actually a really good point about how long they're tested for. I mean, I did a pharmaceutical chemistry module mm. uh, in my second year of uni. And one of the things that we learned was how long it actually takes for um, drugs yeah. and vaccines to get onto market. It can take many years and there's many phases as well. It's not just one phase of human testing. It's three phases. So, yeah. Um, there's other ingredients in vaccines like mm. aluminium compounds and thiomersal, which is a mercury-based preservative. Can these ingredients kind of accumulate in the body and contribute to the onset of autism or developmental disorders in children? Mm-hmm. Um, so again, these things have been like really thoroughly tested, so we know that they're they're safe to put in. Um, in terms of accumulation, you've got something everyone talks about detoxing and you've got a great detoxer inside you you know it's called your liver it's great at taking these things out um you know but these chemicals are there for a reason so a lot of them are what we call adjuvants and these are chemicals that give your immune system a bit of a shove into kicking into action um they're kind of like the flag wavers saying hello you know there's a virus here let's let's do something about it um and again they've been thoroughly tested so you know they might have been prototypes of a vaccine that contained more of them or less of them and they found the right balance on the the you know the best amount to have to kick your immune system into action and to make sure you have the best reaction to the vaccine that you can have um in terms of accumulation i've never seen a, any kind of evidence that they accumulate in your body like i say your liver is really good at um taking this stuff out and it does that all the time you know with food and drink and things are exposed to all the time naturally mm-hmm. and in terms of developmental disorders um obviously i think this is going to come up a lot as well in the podcast um mm-hmm. it's been disproved time and time again that there is no link between vaccines and autism or you know any kind of um disorder in you know mentally um and again it's been thoroughly tested for safety every time you would not get a vaccine clinically used that was not safe for the vast majority of the population yeah and i think it's worth mentioning that thiomersal is no longer used here in the uk and there are two types of mercury compounds that exist in thiomersal and that would be ethyl mercury or methyl mercury now there is evidence to prove that ethyl mercury which was used in vaccines here in the uk uh, didn't harm or accumulate in the body but then it is still used in the US, thiomersal with the ethyl mercury compound still used in the US um, in their flu vaccines so it's you know worth knowing but now we're going to talk about a famous doctor that many of you may have heard of and that doctor is called Dr Andrew Wakefield. Yeah I think Wakefield only used 12 boys was it or 12 kids in his experiments so that should already tell us a lot about the way that went. And he, so he published a study in 1998 on the Lancet Journal. And he based his study on 12 children and basically concluded that MMR vaccines cause autism. We actually studied a little bit about Dr. Andrew Wakefield in my foundation year of uni. Um, we have a communicating science module every single year. And obviously... <laughs> As Sarah will go on to say, the way he communicated the science and the way he, you know, ruined trust in 
scientists. It, it, it's like on no other. It's unparalleled. Now, keep in mind, this was this study was actually taken down by the Lancet in 2010, and there was some speculation as to where Wakefield had gotten his funding from to to perform this study. Uh, we will link any websites and studies that we used for this podcast as usual in our show notes. So do go and have a look and have a read. It's quite interesting. You might be thinking, why have I brought up this story? Well, basically, recent in the more recent years, and especially in 2008 and 2009, before his study was taken down, we saw outbreaks of measles uh, in the UK. Now, that Uh, as well as in the US and Canada. And a lot of these outbreaks have been put down to an increase in the number of non-vaccinated children. So I guess my question is, Grace, why do you think parents are still afraid to vaccinate their children, even with all the proof that Wakefield's research was quite unethical and unfounded? Mm -hmm. It's a good question. Um... I've actually asked my parents this question of why did they get me vaccinated? So I was about the age of um, MMR vaccine when this all kicked off. Um, and my mum, both my parents, in fact, they're not scientists, they're, you know, everyday people. Um, and I said to my mum, you know, why did you get me vaccinated when it was all kicking off? You know, what led to that decision? And um, unfortunately, my mum's been very unlucky in the fact that she had measles and mumps separately. Because um, when she was a child, this vaccine didn't exist. And she said to me that it was so severe, both her illnesses, that she would honestly rather I lived a healthy, happy life, maybe, you know, with the risk of autism, than go through these diseases because she suffered quite long term um, side effects from particularly from her measles infection. Um, So it's quite impacted us quite personally, really. Um, But I think the reason that people are still afraid now is because back then the media coverage on this topic was so huge and as we all know the the media does tend to be quite inflammatory you know it wants grabbing headlines and it wants to discuss all the various you know attention grabbing aspects of these stories and then when it was um, disproved and it was retracted and in fact Wakefield was struck off the medical register in the UK that wasn't really reported as much and um, I remember another conversation with my sister-in-law who is mother to my two nephews and I said to her, um, you know, are you going to get their vaccines? And we had a discussion about it. And she actually didn't know that the research had been retracted. So that news didn't even make it to, again, to the general public, because my family are all, um, you know, everyday average people. They're not scientists again. So it's really difficult, I think. And I think it's partly the media's fault for not, you know, telling people what they need to know. And partly the fact that scientists often aren't the best communicators. Um Obviously, a scientist's main job is to do research. So we're mainly busy Uh in the lab. It's quite rare that we get opportunities like this to directly talk to people and explain these things. So I think that's partly the reason is the information didn't get across. But also this story led to such a big movement in the anti-vaccine movement, um, which is quite frustrating. And it's a difficult one because I think anti-vaxxers personally, like surely they must come from a Uh, approach of I want to do the best for my children because surely we all do so I think it's coming from a side of fear but Uh unfortunately that fear is kind of shutting them off to wanting to have a productive discussion and listening to the evidence because their fear has made them so certain that they're doing the right thing for their children so yeah I think it's getting that information out there getting conversations started communicating the right information 
and hopefully rebuilding trust because these people seem to believe Wakefield and his research, but I think he's been so destructive in terms of trust between the general public and science. It's quite astounding how a study from 1998 can have such a huge effect on public opinion of vaccinations and of science. Mm. And I mean, I watched an episode from, I think it was Jubilee. They did a middle ground episode with uh, anti-vax and pro-vax. And one of the things the doctor on the pro-vax side said is that people tend to forget how bad it was before vaccinations. And I think communicating that to the public in a way that's not fear-mongering is probably the best way to go. Because obviously, I think a lot of parents come from a place of care for their child, and that's why they think they shouldn't get the vaccination. Mm-hmm. However, from an anti-vax point of view, there may be some anecdotal evidence that suggests that there's like a regression in communication, in communication skills once the vaccine is given. And the vaccine, I think, is usually given when the child is around one to three years. Is there any explanation for this? I think the main explanation that you see time and time again, which is one that I fully believe in, is that you have, like you say, the vaccine is given at one year old mm-hmm. or, you know, between one and three is recommended at one. And when you um, see autism in children, when it's diagnosed, tends to be around one to two years yeah. at the same time. And a lot of people often put two and two together and they just assume it must be the same. It's like people who might go and get the flu vaccine, two weeks later they're ill and they say, oh, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. But you might have got ill whether you had it or not, or it might have been a completely different illness or, you know, there's so many different variables. You know, as a scientist, when you look at a person, we always talk about variables, you know, what have we changed, what are we testing? one individual person has so many variables you can't definitely say that one thing that happened in their life definitely caused another one the work that I'm doing at the moment we have um, cells that we get from patients and we use those cells in our research and every different patient is different and it's such a difficult thing to work with in the lab where you can control so many aspects in real life there's just you know there's no control you can't definitely say that one thing caused another thing until you've done a really big thorough study Mm And there have been a lot done, obviously, in this um, area now. And time and time again, every study says the same thing, that there is no significant link at all between the MMR vaccine and autism. And I think anecdotal evidence is always something scientists hate it. It's just, you know, and we all we all do it, to be fair. You know, in real life, I'll be like, oh, that must have been because of that. And then I take two steps back and think, no, actually, that's just a coincidence. Yeah. Um, you know, my favourite is people who say, oh, my nan smoked till she was 100 and she was fine. It's like, yeah, but we, we know that smoking causes lung cancer and other diseases. Just because one person was fine, that doesn't make the other thing less true, you know. So I think people need to trust the process that scientists do. And when we do these large studies, trust the results because they've been thoroughly they've been thoroughly tested by the scientists they then go through what we call the peer review system so you don't just publish any old paper you know you submit it to a journal they send it to several people in the field they then review it and either agree with it or send it back for corrections and only then will it go forward to be published so you know these things go through many rounds of you know checking and thorough um, making sure the information coming out is the the best information available at the time and that may be where the issue lies i guess people don't really trust what's put out there sometimes by scientists or they trust the wrong sources of information mm-hmm. but then let's say that i go ahead and get myself vaccinated 
now most vaccines i think require a booster shot or some of them uh, to ensure that we stay immune to a disease because the effect of a vaccine may wear off roughly after 10 to 15 years uh, depending on the vaccine i suppose Uh, It poses the question then of whether or not unvaccinated children pose similar risks as adults. Mm -hmm. It's a good question. Um, So there's different reasons why we might need a booster or not need a booster. So sometimes we don't need a booster because the initial vaccine causes a really strong immune response. And then your um, immune system has a thing called memory. We call them memory cells, in fact. And these cells can last a really long time for certain antigens, um, so certain pathogens, or they might last quite a short time in which they would need a booster to kind of remind them that they need to make more of those cells. Um, For some diseases that are only a risk in childhood, you wouldn't need a booster because if your immunity lasts 10 years anyway, it's only a severe risk in children. You know, maybe you'd have it in early age and then you're covered until you're an adult and then you're probably going to be fine. Um, Some vaccines just naturally produce a weaker response. You know, some pathogens naturally will produce a weaker response than other pathogens. And um, for those ones, we might need a booster as well. So for instance, a hep B jab. So I've had a hep B jab. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's worked with human tissue has to have a hep B jab. You have to have three different doses and then you have to have a blood test to check that you actually have had a response because it's not the most effective vaccine, unfortunately. and, you know, that's important to make sure that your immune system remembers it. So those boosters that you have within, I think it's a year and a half for hep B, it might be a little bit shorter. It's enough repeat instances to remind your immune system that you do need to keep making these cells. So it's not necessarily that you have an, a vaccine, you know, that's going to wear off in 10 years and you have another booster then. It's just little repeat um, exposures to remind your immune system that these are good cells that you need to keep uh-huh. for future reference. Yeah. Um, in terms of whether unvaccinated children pose similar risk to adults, that is a really interesting question um so it's not definitely every vaccine you have will wear off after 10 years it's really variable between what you've been vaccinated against how the vaccine works and again it's variable between individuals because everyone responds differently to a vaccine um i'm not sure i can completely answer that i think it really depends on the vaccine and the pathogen and it also depends on why are we vaccinating so you know some people get um tetanus vaccines a lot of the time you always hear on american sitcoms about you know tetanus shots and stuff like that whereas in the uk we don't really have that because it's not it's not really an issue here Mm um you know and sometimes so you go on holiday you might get hep a jab you might get the hep a jab every time you go to a country where you'd need that it's not you have it once and you're covered for life so yeah it's interesting um but i think in general i think unvaccinated children would be you know bigger risk because they've never had that exposure especially for quite severe diseases Mm -hmm. you know why do we vaccinate is to protect you against diseases that are quite dangerous um so things like measles that's potentially lethal that's definitely you know you definitely want to be vaccinated against that if you want to have protection and that does last many 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 years you know we know that's quite a good vaccine yeah that's actually really interesting and it makes complete sense to me what about you sarah it does yeah it's variable everyone everyone's different situations are different and that's a part of science I guess that we have to acknowledge I know I was just going to say and it's important that people know this and that they know that this stuff is variable and to also um, get vaccinated Mm. because it does pose a risk on public health Mm -hmm. I think it's a really good point about people knowing how effective vaccines are especially at the moment with COVID I think people are expecting a vaccine to pop up and it's going to work for everyone it's going to be fantastic and that's that's just not the reality you know some vaccines are 50 to 60 percent effective some are 90 percent effective but no vaccine is 100 percent effective 
Um, and the more people who get vaccinated, the more effective it will be as a population as well. So it's, it's all about knowing this. And I think maybe transparency would be a good way to go. Yeah, definitely. I guess it's all about teamwork, isn't it? Because we work together to make sure that as a population we're protected from a pathogen or a disease. And in order for that to happen, we all have to, um, the majority of us, those who can have to get vaccinated. Uh, and that's really important for the effectiveness of a vaccine, as you mentioned. And I guess a demonstration of how not getting vaccinated and its impacts on the population would be the surge of the number of measles cases we've seen in England and Wales. So for those of you who may not know, the UK actually established an elimination status in 2017 from measles. But then this was revoked in 2018 because there were a huge increase in the number of cases. Now, this increase was also put down to the reduced uptake of the MMR vaccine, which has fallen since 2016. And now this MMR vaccine gives immunity against measles, mumps and rubella. So surely if a disease is eliminated from a country, there isn't a need to vaccine children against it. What do you think of this, Grace? Mm hmm. Um, this is a really another good question that I'm really glad you've brought up because um, I think especially now we've really seen how um, foreign and international travel really impacts everyone. So again, using COVID as an example, you know, that started in China. It's now in pretty much every country in the world because of how we behave as humans. So, I mean, we still vaccinate today against polio in the UK. And how many cases of polio do we actually have? I'm sure it's barely a handful, but polio is a massive problem in certain countries that many people in the UK travel to or they travel to here and it can bring um, these diseases with them. And polio obviously is a really bad disease. It's quite severe. You definitely need medical attention if you catch it. Um, the same with um, measles and mumps can be very, very severe. You know, that's why we vaccinate against them. And you only need one infected person to come and introduce to a population for it to then be in. Um, and like I said before, I know several people who have had measles and several people who have had mumps. They're really awful diseases. And we're seeing more and more outbreaks, particularly in university campuses as well. So mumps comes a lot um, every year. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it's really important that your population is kind of um, ready for anything that might come into the population. And again, especially for these diseases that are quite severe and might have severe side effects or they might be fatal if untreated. You know, it's better to have a prevention than a cure. Mm -hmm. And that's that's pretty much the NHS's policy. And I think most scientists would agree with me that, you know, prevention is better than cure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, some people do rely on herd immunity, which is the idea that uh, most in a population is vaccinated against a disease. And that makes sense to me when it comes to people who are immunocompromised or immunosuppressed. But there's a lot of parents who they don't want to give vaccinations from to their children because they it, the concept stems from one particular question. And that there are some people that are vaccinating their children. By default, they should protect my own children. So why do I need to go and vaccinate them? What's your take mm -hmm. on this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so herd immunity is really important because it protects, like you say, the immunocompromised. Um, but they're not the only people who can't get vaccines. So 
Um, newborn babies, for instance, obviously can't be vaccinated straight away. There's certain vaccines coming at certain times. Um, there's also people who might have an allergy to the vaccines. So, if, for yeah. example, um, the flu vaccine that comes out every year is made in eggs. If you're allergic to eggs, you cannot have that vaccine because obviously you'll have a reaction to that. Um, so you're not just protecting the immunocompromised, you're protecting people who can't have it for allergy reasons, you're protecting newborn children who tends to be more severe disease. So for instance, um, measles in newborn children is just absolutely horrendous. And if you inject, you know, vaccinate your healthy child, your healthy child is protecting someone else down the line. So let's say, for example, we've got a population of 100 and 20% of them, so 20 of them cannot get vaccinated for whatever reason, you'd really hope the other 80% would get their vaccine. But if, you know, half of them say oh I don't want my child vaccinated the 40% you know the remainder will do it then you've only got 40% who are you know vaccinated and then it comes back to that how effective is the vaccine so let's say the vaccine is 50 to 60% then you've only got 20% of your population you know and it's just cutting it down and down and down so and that's completely hypothetical pulling those numbers out the air but you know some vaccines are only 60% effective and therefore more people who get them the more likely it will be that most people have some level of immunity to it um so and those people um just to make it really clear you know if the pathogen was wandering around the population the people who've been vaccinated wouldn't catch it so they'd be less likely to pass it on to someone who hasn't been vaccinated so in a sense they're protecting them they're not becoming a carrier you know they're not becoming someone who's going to reproduce this disease and spread it in the population um so i think it's one of those things you're not just protecting yourself you're protecting other people and again, that's shown in this current pandemic. It's our behaviour has been highlighted as you are not just responsible for yourself now, you're responsible for those around you, whether you meet them in person or whether you're just passing through, say, a supermarket. You know, that that example happens for all these diseases all the time. And the more people who are vaccinated, the less chance it will be that you'll pass it on. Yeah, absolutely. So one, lo- one last question, Grace, if that's OK. Um, if the if we have a look at the NHS vaccination program, and you can see that children are often given so many vaccines in a short amount of time, um, a common concern would be overloading the immune system, and so people often delay it or wouldn't give all the vaccines. Can can it really become too much for them um, for their Im- immature immune systems to handle? Um, I mean, I've never seen a case of where that has happened ever um your immune system is very clever and it's really busy all the time especially in young children so a baby in the womb won't be exposed to any pathogens normally hopefully um and when they're born they're exposed to so many things in the environment and it's a really important time for their immune system to work out what is safe so things like food that we eat and what is not safe you know bacteria and um pathogenic viruses and things like that so your immune system in your first couple of years of life is so busy deciding what is important to immunize itself against and you know what should we leave because that's important to keep um so it's it's not I don't use the word overloaded it's just very busy at that time anyway Mm -hmm. and these vaccines will introduce to your immune system pathogens that you won't occur um well hopefully shouldn't occur and get ill with you know you're exposing it now so that in the future you'll be protected against it so it's it's an extra little burden on it but your immune system is never overloaded per se um Obviously, some of the symptoms that we get from um, vaccines can be like having the disease itself. So things like a high temperature or you might feel a bit run down. 
but that's because those symptoms that we get from infections are actually produced by our immune system anyway. So a fever is your body's effort to almost heat yourself up to kill the pathogen. You feel a bit rubbish when you've got the flu or a cold because you're producing a chemical called interferon, which is antiviral. And that makes you feel awful because it really it, um, inflames the muscles a little bit. And that's a normal response to all these pathogens. And therefore, it's a normal response to the vaccine. It shows that your body is responding to the vaccine. That's really good. So it's not an overload. It's a normal response, basically. And I think you pointing out the, um, the routine, the NHS list of vaccines, you know, that's not just been someone said, oh, we need to add this and oh, we need to add this and oh, we need to add this. No, people have sat down and said, this is the best time to get these vaccines. Can we give these at the same time? Yes. Should we maybe not give these at the same time? No. So, you know, it's been designed by experts who know what they're doing and it's been tried and tested. And, you know, how many children a year go through that exact protocol and absolutely fine. You know, we know these things are safe and they are designed mm -hmm. by people who know what they're doing. You know, I've just come up with a question. I hope it's okay if I spring this on you guys. Yeah, go for it. Um, so one thing that parents do have concerns with is if the vaccination is not, you know, 100% effective and it doesn't uh, protect against all strains of the flu, let's say, for example, then mm -hmm. they'd rather have their children build a natural immunity to the vaccine, uh, to the disease through having exposure to the pathogen naturally. Yeah. What do you think of this? Um, it's a really good question. Um, so some diseases, like we've discussed, that are quite severe, I think it would be quite reckless to say you want your child to be exposed to the you know, real life disease when that mm -hmm. real life disease can have quite long lasting, um, you know, debilitating consequences or some that might be fatal, um, you know, potentially fatal. So at the end of the day, your immunity to a pathogen is normally better when it is you're just exposed to that pathogen because it's got all the bits on it. It behaves as it would behave in real life because it's real life. Um, a vaccine is almost a mimic of that so it's never going to be as good as the pathogen itself however i'd rather have a vaccine and have maybe a little bit of high temperature in an achy arm than have the real life virus be completely immune to it but then have some horrible side effects mm -hmm. um so for instance my mum had um ocular side effects so her her sight was um quite badly affected oh, wow. you know i'd rather have the vaccine <laughs> you know um and you know it depends on it's really dependent on the pathogen and the circumstance so for instance with flu um when i worked at a hospital site i was entitled to get the flu vaccine every year and i've had the flu before and it was a horrible week and then i was fine again but i would rather have that vaccine so that i didn't pass it to someone in the hospital than you know take my chances myself and i think it's it's going back to that it's not just about you thing it's you know getting immunity and behaving responsibly as an adult you know that's that's what yeah. we're all responsible for each other's health now not just ourselves and that's that's always been the case I think it's just the the pandemic has really highlighted that definitely definitely absolutely it's all about looking after each other and I think this is where we will wrap it up thank you so much for being here with us today Grace we really enjoyed your company and this super informative chat not a problem uh, we hope everyone else out there enjoyed this episode as much as I did anyways but please talk to your doctor if you have any concerns so they can advise you on the best course of action on an individual basis uh, and on that note thank you for listening to this episode of the growth medium and don't forget to rate and review this podcast all sources will be left in the show notes uh, make sure to let us know what you think on our instagram at the growth medium 
Until next time.